Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. Um, the show uh, is actually pre-taped. Uh, we're, it's Thursday, October 25th um, in our in our world. And today I'm lucky to be sitting with Aliki Barnstone here in the studio. Welcome, Aliki. Thank you. It's fun to chair dance with you. <laughs> <laughs> Completely clean, though. <laughs> that sounds kind of risque oh, 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 for yeah, the Living Writers Show. <laughs> especially for someone who taught at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, for so many years. I can't help myself, you know. <laughs> well, actually, that was perfectly innocent. I, I just took it to the, the 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 other direction. I don't excuse me. I don't know why I was just working with elementary school students today. You'd think that I would be completely innocent and skipping through, you know, the forest right now. Well, we are, but that doesn't mean that we can't make jokes about chair dancing. <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome, Aliki. Thanks. Thanks for your. So you're you're here in Ann Arbor. Um, you're you're um, going to be reading at the, the University of Michigan uh, from your book, Blue Earth. Are you going to be reading from I'm Blue Earth? I'm going read a little bit from Blue Earth and also from my translation of Kavafi. Oh, wonderful. And some new poems um, from a book that's coming out in 2008 called Peak. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, yeah. I'm, I love to get the, the scoop on the Living Writers Show. <laughs> 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 so thanks for bringing the, the new work, um, too. Well, um, what I'll do is read your uh, your bio to get us started, and okay. there's a there's a lot here. It's you don't have to one. read the whole thing, but okay. Well, um, let's see. Well, I'll read a little bit just so that everyone listening can have right. the they they'll know who they're listening to. Okay. <laughs> Aliki Barnstone is a poet, translator, critic, and editor. Her books of poems are Wild with It, uh, National Books Critics Circle, Notable Book, Madly in Love. Windows in Providence, and The Real Tin Flower, uh, which was introduced by Anne Sexton and was published in 1968 when she was only 12 years old. She edited a book of women poets from antiquity to now, uh, The Calvinist Roots of the Modern Era, the Shambhala Anthology of Women's Spiritual Poetry, and she introduced and wrote the reader's notes for HD's trilogy. She has recorded a collaborative CD with musician Frank Haney, her translation of C.P. Cavafy's collected poems, and a study of the development of Emily Dickinson's poetry are forthcoming. And there's lots of many wonderful things about your family and where you've traveled. Um, and that's what I, I'd like us to talk about that okay. later. So, All right. Okay. Um, and I'm so and glad the Cavafy and the Dickinson book actually are out now. So anyway. Oh, so not forthcoming. Not forthcoming. <laughs> yes, out in out the in the world. And, and did you bring the Emily Dickinson too? No. Oh, I did. Well, that's okay. We'll talk. We'll talk about Emily. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna wear my Emily Dickinson is my homegirl T-shirt, but I couldn't find it when oh, I was moving around. That's and so <laughs> clever and funny. Better than chair dancing. <laughs> um, no, you're too kind. Um, well, I did notice um, that that your book Blue Earth, the, the one that was sent to me by your publishers, Aliki, mm -hmm. was dedicated to your father, Willis mm -hmm. Barnstone, who's also a poet mm -hmm. and then translator, your, literary critic, and editor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a, a renaissance yeah. man. He's he's insanely productive. So I, I have to try to work at not working sometimes, because otherwise I'll follow in his footsteps. He's um, publishing um, seven books in 2008. No one should do that. But Seven anyway. books? Are they... So they're poetry, they're criticism? <sighs> he's po well, one of the seven is he's, his translation of the New Testament. But anyway, yes, this <gasps> book is dedicated to my dad because um, actually... Um, because he had faith in this book and, um, well, and also he's done so much for me, but, um, 
this book is a very strange book because I finished writing it in 1992, the initial writing, and I revised and revised, and I sent it out and sent it out. And finally, um, it was accepted in 2002, and then another two years went by, revising, 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 and um, it that's, came out. That's, a, that's unusual, isn't it, um, that... You're, you're two well, years in revising after because they've said, "Oh, we want it, Aliki." Yeah, well, yeah, but it's, it's just this thing about you know, it's, you can make changes, you keep on making changes. So it's a strange book in that regard. Um, but there's usually a fair amount of lag time, you know, in between quote finishing unquote a book, <laughs> which I don't know if that ever really happens. Sometimes I look at poems that are published and I think. Wow, I'd like to revise that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you can always do that, yeah, right? You like can. Fitzgerald was always yeah. futzing about, right? With uh, with the great Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember one time um, um, my dad and I were visiting Mark Strand. This was years ago. And he gave my dad a book. But before he gave the book to my dad, he crossed out a couple of lines in the book. <laughs> That's great. He did the last minute line edits there. Right, right. The poem is a new being now. I'll have right. to change it for you. Right. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Because it, it seems like, well, because I just thought it was lovely that you dedicated it to your father. And I wanted to tell you that actually well, the first time I ever went to AWP, that uh, Associated Writing yeah, Power right. yeah. Conference, yeah. Um, I, I noticed him. And then the next time I went to Austin, I said that because he just stands out. He's this presence that's yeah, sort of emanating. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, how wonderful that the, the book that I happened to read was the book that you dedicated to <laughs> yeah, him. Because yeah. you probably don't dedicate them all to him. Even, no, you know. no, I yeah. don't. Do, not all of them. But, Some um, for your mom. Or <laughs> yeah. Well, the Kavafi book is dedicated to both my parents. But the, my dad, even when I was ready to throw Blue Earth, you know, in the trash and forget about it, you know, um, my dad would always say, no, no, it's a great book. You know, he believed he in believed it. He believed in it. Yeah, he did. Oh, and he you've got to take take his word for it. <laughs> yeah. Was there ever a time when you didn't think that you would, like, that you weren't going to be a poet, Aliki, coming from this, art, it seems like a very artistic family, very pr producing, creating, yeah. left and right. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was in college, um, I flirted with being a painter. And um, and I'm glad. I, well, I still um, make some visual art, and um, actually, at the moment, I'm kind of very turned on by the idea of making more visual art again. Um, but uh, um, why I'm, is that? Why why is it just like another way of communicating? Or well, is it just my mom's a painter, is, oh. and I'm and um, and one of my jokes is that uh, that um, I'm. I didn't become a painter, so I, you know, I'm a frustrated painter, so I paint with words. But I, I resist that saying that now. I, I'm a very visual poet, but um, I'm also really interested in the music of of the words and um, of or of the word and the language. So I think, I mean, one thing about poetry is you get to do both. You know, be musical and and be um, visual. I guess and, you get to tell do a that. story too, because your poems are very narrative. These, and this experiential. Book, this book is very oh. narrative. <laughs> the, okay, the book that I've had access <laughs> right, yeah. to recently. Yeah, um, but uh, um, 
Yes, my dad really believed in this book, and so I thought that it should be dedicated to him because he didn't let me throw it in the trash. Not that I would have actually thrown it in the trash. I would have just given up on it. But, um, yes, yeah, so when I was in college, I... I was I had a you know kind of big debate with myself about whether to be a poet or a painter and um but you were never going to be like a lawyer or a, an engineer or a school teacher or because because that's again in the arts like it's just it seems like the arts surround you right and, um well uh when I was on the job market for years and years, I considered alternative professions. And so I did consider uh, the law, um, but I, I don't think I would have been happy doing that. And um, well, luckily, I didn't have to make this choice. But my favorite thing that, uh, that I thought I would really enjoy doing, and I still think I would really enjoy doing, was I wanted to be a mail carrier in California. Well, why is that? Like... It- Tell, is it the uniform? <laughs> is it the, shor- the shorts. <laughs> well, um, actually, it was because I could walk around and think, and I could. So I could. I'm. I'm pretty athletic, I guess. Um, anyway, I like. I like. Like to um, move my body. So I thought I could walk around. I could see really nice things. I could carry the mail to people. And that, so I'd be doing something that people like to get mail less so now than before, because people don't get much personal mail anymore, but, um, mostly more the bills. Yeah. It's more the bills and the the catalogs now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but anyway, at the time when people did get personal mail more, and, uh, and was that San Francisco? Because you've got some San Francisco. Yeah, poems in I went. Earth. I went to Berkeley for graduate school, so I was imagining that I would live in the Bay Area and be a mail carrier and get to just walk around, which was one of the things I did anyway. I just would get to walk around the Bay Area and and um, and and think, and then maybe I'd get to write some poems too. And it's interesting because the. Um, the, my, the mail carrier in my new neighborhood in Columbia. Oh, yes. Yeah, you just moved. <laughs> I just moved. <laughs> the new yeah. state. And, um, and, and we had a whole conversation about, you know, he was saying, oh, you're, you know, you're a professor and PhD. And I said, actually, if I hadn't gotten a job as a professor, I would have become a mail carrier. And so we talked about, I said, so do you like being a mail carrier? And he said, yes, it's, you know, he's actually retiring um, soon. He says, don't. So his job is opening up. His I'm job leaking. is opening up. So if I decide that I don't like it, which I love it at MU, I can... Um, I can I can maybe say you know I I'd like to sign up to be a mail carrier in Columbia which would be fun but anyway he's from Hannibal Missouri Mark Twain's birthplace ooh yeah anyway so That's okay a so nice that was connection. my I also let's see I also thought about being a therapist but I think that that would have really ruined me as a poet if I had become a therapist I would be you know would be too um Maybe all those stories would be emerging on the in the poems. I and, just think it seems I just think it would be too much. You know, it's it's that I maybe I wouldn't. I, I don't like to think of poetry as mere self-expression or therapy. But maybe if I were doing that, I would not have room anymore to write poetry. You know. But anyway, it didn't happen. Right, <laughs> poet, yeah. professor, yeah, <laughs> Aliki Barnstone. Well, well, we'll take we'll take a short break, and okay. um, we'll be right back with the Living Writers Show and Aliki Barnstone. Yes, I'm lonely. Wanna die. 
girl, you know the reason why. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writers Show, and I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Aliki Barnstone uh, is here in the studio um, talking. So, uh, Aliki, it's great to have you here. It's good to be here. <laughs> and now, we'd, I'd love to hear um, some of your poems. Will you Will you read something for yes, us? Yes, I will read, um, I'm going to read a couple of Kavafi translations, and then um, I'll read a couple of poems of mine that are set in Greece and are um, influenced by Kavafi. Wonderful. Okay. That will be wonderful. Um, All right. So first I'll read Ithaca, which is um, probably, along with Waiting for the Barbarians, Kavafi's most famous poem. Um, And there's a reason for it. Ithaca. As you set out on the journey to Ithaca, wish that the way be long, full of adventures, full of knowledge. Don't be afraid of Lastragonians, the Cyclops, angry Poseidon. You'll never find them on your way if your thought stays exalted, if a rare emotion touches your spirit and body. You won't meet the Lastragonians and the Cyclops and wild Poseidon if you don't bear them along in your soul, if your soul doesn't raise them before you. Wish that the way be long. May there be many summer mornings when with such pleasure, such joy, you enter ports seen for the first time. May you stop in Phoenician Emporia to buy fine merchandise, mother of pearl and coral, amber and ebony, and every kind of sensual perfume. Buy abundant sensual perfumes, as many as you can. Travel to many Egyptian cities to learn and learn from their scholars. Always keep Ithaca in your mind, Arriving there is your destination. But don't hurry the journey at all. Better if it lasts for many years and you moor on the island when you are old, rich with all you have gained along the way. 
not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the beautiful journey. Without her, you would not have set out on your way. She is no more to give you. And if you find her poor, Ithaca did not betray you. With all your wisdom, all your experience, you understand by now what Ithacas mean. Oh, thank you. Thank you. C.P. Kavafi. That would be wonderful. Okay, so this is the last poem in, um, in, in Blue Earth. Um, uh, go to the good and return with the good. And it has an epigraph from the poem I just read. You won't meet the Lastragonians and the Cyclops and wild Poseidon if you don't bear them along in your soul, if your soul doesn't raise them before you. When I left Serifos an hour ago, Kiria Marinya stood in Halidas's store, her jaw shaking and said slowly, go to the good and return with the good. On the islands, more than in Athens and other cities, people keep their greetings and farewells, blessings and good wishes for every time of day and year, for health, a trip, appetite, a swim, and the long life of children. Go to the bakery or across the ocean and they say, Stokalo, go to the good. It's good to remember that those who say the islands are isolated are mistaken. Islands aren't self-sufficient and never were. The old men sit all afternoon in the caffeineon playing gin rummy and backgammon, smoking, drinking co Greek coffee or ouzo, and eating mezedes, small plates of cucumber, olives, feta, and cubes of bread topped with sardines, all stuck with toothpicks. Everything savored slowly, slowly. Siga, siga. They can always tell you when the boats come and from where. At each docking, a crowd gathers to see who's returned with whom and how many tourists. In the ancient commerce between the islands, friends and family depart and arrive to go to Athens or to fish. Lovers separate, and in the journey, there might be another. There's always the possibility of return. At the ferry's stern, I watch goodbye a long time. Look back, look back to the night village, window lights gathered at the mountain summit, and the lighthouse rhythmically rolling its cyclops eye, recalling that on Seriphos, Odysseus blinded the one-eyed monster whose dark head might float below the agitated wake. On my tongue is tangy sea air, wanderlust, luxury, tender commerce. Will the words ferry me to the other side, go to the good and return to the good? Lights of other shores, other ships rise from the horizon, and I sail on, look back until the island, then the lighthouse disappear, loved. Thank you, Aliki. That was lovely. Thanks. That's, um, how... 
so it seems like you're you're writing about Greece, and mm-hmm. it's so uh, you can tell that it's something that you you know a place you know so intimately, mm-hmm. and your your mom your mom is from, Greek is Greek, yeah. Um, so that makes sense. And mm-hmm. um, how how do you decide? Is it something? I'm wondering. So how did you come upon Kavathi? Was it something that you've known since you were a girl that your mom always? wanted you to know or did you go to Greece and find the poet there in a way mm-hmm. like his memory or how and how do you decide to translate <laughs> a poet okay that's like a million the, questions all rolled into one yeah <laughs> well you know um Greeks are always trying to get back to Greece and and so that's why Ithaca and this poem have you know I mean the, there there's um, kind of a conversation going on there, and um, my mom now has managed to make her life so that she spends half the year in Greece and half the year in the States, and um, so I've always been bicultural, and now after spending a year and a half in Greece, I'm more bicultural um one of my friends who's greek american says uh, which means i've got one foot in the united states and i've got one foot in greece um so for me i'm always trying to get back to greece and yet i never can really get there you know i can never really be there because i'm american too and my work is here, and my I write in English, and so there's that. You know, you never get to Ithaca, but the journey is great. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that has a special uh, special resonance for you right. then. Yeah. Anyway, so um, when uh, I guess it was 1983, I was taking a break from going to school because so I didn't know what to do with myself. I've had several periods where I I realize now, uh, you know, now that I'm 51, that I've been incredibly focused in my life, but I've had these moments where I thought I wasn't focused. That seems like a poet's life, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, you have to kind of, you have to do a little bit of both, right? Um, You have to let the, be free, and at the same time, you have to have enough focus to write. Um... And others might seem think that it's unfocused, or, or even your, yourself, as you said, it seem. But there might be some sort of method, hidden method, well, <laughs> a poet, even from yourself, right? A well, patchwork life. Well, I'm the poet who wrote a book called Wild with It, and so mm-hmm. I, I've had I have this mythology about myself that you know I'm I'm a free spirit and I'm wild with it and I love to travel and I'm, you know and I like to do things spontaneously and that but then I look back at my life life and I see that uh, that I've made spaces for myself to be um, what I'm calling free or wild but it's within a structure of focus and being quite driven and um, that's kind of a that's what I meant when I was said I'm working and not working <laughs> you know it's to give you give myself a little bit of space to um, be free but anyway um, in 1983 I I, uh, I, I was or 1982 83 sometime in there um, I was taking a break I, I had entered the PhD program in literature at um, UC Santa Cruz. I ended up getting my PhD from Berkeley. But I, I was kind of, I, I didn't quite find what I wanted there. 
And uh, so I didn't know quite what to do with myself. And so I went to Greece for a year. And while I was in Greece, my dad sent me a copy, a paperback copy of, um, of Kilian Sherard's um, translation and he put a postage stamp, which had Kavafi's face on it. He taped it onto the cover of the book. And I still have that book. It's totally beat up. I carried it around for years and years and years. And so um, I, I don't remember what happened. I just, you know, Kavafi was one of my greatest influences. And at some point, I just decided I wanted to translate Kavafi. And... Um, and I did. The thing is that, see, I'm telling you about Keeley and Sherard because Keeley and Sherard gave me Kavafi in English. And translators aren't, I think most translators, any aren't competitive with each other. The more translations, the better. Oh, I think. that's a wonderful spirit <laughs> community to have. It's sort of unheard of. <laughs> well, I, th I think that that's the right spirit of tra in, in translation. Yeah. I mean, because the more people translate Kavafi, the more possibilities there are for loving Kavafi. Yes. And if you love it so much, you want yeah. more people yeah. to have access. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how, like, seemingly non-American. <laughs> Kidding. I shouldn't. Yeah. I love America. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> and it's wonderful that you say you have the, that expression, one foot in, in Greece, one foot in America, because that also speaks to making um, like a space for yourself, like a rooted space, as well as the space for freedom. Yeah. Well, um, but back to translating. Okay. Back to translating. <laughs> What about it? Oh. <laughs> where More about it? <laughs> well, well, but is it is it something where you you loved this the translate they they it meant it they gave you Kavafi you say right, those are yeah. your words mm -hmm. but is there also something where you think I feel like I understand something about Kavafi that I would also yeah. like to yeah. or is it about spending time in a way with a poet well or, it's all of those <laughs> things I have a friend who loves Kavafi and I can see her uh, Katie one day doing some translating of Kavafi and yeah um well um you know um the the example I use is 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 that um is Dante you know if um if we only had one translation of Dante, how poor would the world be? We need to have many translations of Dante. And, um, and yeah, um, uh, Kilian Sherard gave me Kavafi, and then Ray Dalvin gave me Kavafi, and there are other, other those are the two main ones for me. Um, and they're the two most well-known translations. But I heard something else. I think, um, uh, uh, and, um, it's not that their translations are wrong. It's just that I heard a music in Kavafi that I wanted to give to the world. And um, and it was a real labor of love. And the thing I call translation um, embodied reading. Um, That's nice. Yeah. And um, so in a way, although I think that all translators are are giving to the world it's a service that you perform for the world and it's an absolutely necessary one i think um translation is, is the beginning of or we can't have peace 
in the world unless we have translation. And translation is uh, is larger than than just um, taking a text and bringing it from one language into another. We're translating all the time. And what translation involves is letting yourself go and becoming, letting yourself go and becoming someone else. And at the same time, you have to be fully yourself. In other words, I, if, when I translate a poem, I have to let go of being the writer named Aliki Barnstone, and I have to be the writer named C.P. Cavafy. And at the same time, I cannot make those words in Greek into a poem in English unless I bring everything I know and everything I have inside me as a poet to that translation. So I am completely not myself at the same time that I'm utterly myself, which means that it's an ecstatic experience. And once you do that, <clears throat> once you uh, leave yourself and kind of enter the body of another person's work, then your own work is transformed in really unpredictable ways and really amazing ways um, because you've learned how to be someone other than yourself, which I kind of think is the job of the writer. Even the writer, you know, writer... The, um, I think the word confessional is thrown around a lot and it, it, to the point where it's basically meaningless. But um, um, even if you're writing about something that you know, other people could say, well, this happened in your life, therefore this is autobiographical. It's not, you know, if I'm right, if Aliki Barnstone is writing about the events in Aliki Barnstone's life, it's only, you know, kind of lab material. The imagination has to, has to, has to, you know, Fuse change it. Yeah. And, and I, and I also think, you see, fiction writers are lucky in a certain way because, say, um, Brett Lott came to MU and he, you know, he's saying, well, um, you know, I've written this book and, you know, the character has these things in common with me, but of course, you know, I made stuff up. Well, yeah. And people expect fiction writers to tell all sorts of lies and then not, not to, you know, not to have, you know, any verisimilitude with their own lives because they have to make up characters and so on. Whereas we poor poets... We're supposed to be telling the truth all the time. I mean, the truth about actual events. The or truth something. about the essence. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> right, right. Or, else, or else just, you know, completely abandon any, any kind of autobiography, uh, uh, anything that's at all related to our actual experience and kind of go off into the ether. And both options seem to be, to be quite limiting. And what translation allows you to do is to understand on some very deep level that you're always translating. You're always translating something into something else. That's the, you know, you're, you, you, um, um, uh, you, you leave that person with a name who gets up in the morning and eats breakfast, although that might, you know, breakfast might be a subject for a poem, but you don't need to be the person that, you know, someone calls up and is Leaky Barnstone there. No, this is a leaky speaking, you know, that kind of you, you get to be someone else. Well that's 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 wonderful. And well let's take a short break, a leaky okay. Barnstone, who's sitting here today as herself, and we'll be right back with the Living Writers Show.
sitting singing songs for everyone Sit beside a mountain stream See her waters rise Listen to the pretty sound You're listening to The Living Writers Show, and today, Aliki Barnstone. Uh, we were just talking about translating, and it does seem like um, translating is a part of the, the good, like a good work, good work of a poet. Almost, I almost want to say every poet should be translating, but I'm not <laughs> translating anything right now. But I, every poet, seems, sh- everybody should, every poet, um, I don't know about should, I worry about yes, that, that word, word. should, yes, yeah. but um, I think that every poet um, would benefit from translating, and um, um, even if it's just a couple of poems to experience what it's like, or a, you know, a paragraph, or, I mean, not not just poets, but every writer can benefit from translating, um, and, uh, and, and I was talking about being someone other than yourself, I think one thing that um, writers are kind of charged with or burdened with is um, the ability to empathize with others. And that's why um, why the arts help us, because they allow us to to be, to understand others. Um, one thing that Wolosienko, who was my colleague at UNLV, came to MU and um, and gave a talk and uh, was called Politics and Art. And the last sentence was, the politics of art will always supersede the politics of power, um, which I thought was a pretty amazing thing. And he, he was essentially saying this, that the thing that we kind of 
we want to be cynical about, which is that art is a universal language. But I think it is a universal language in that if we allow it to, it makes everyone human. And that's what we need. <laughs> yes, it's a way to get closer to become be, being more human yeah or more no like noble is an old-fashioned word isn't it yeah. something like <laughs> right. whatever's what's what makes you human in the a noble sense or. yeah um so i was going to read two of kavafi's more erotic poems well, i mean i say in the introduction to the book that i first fell in love with kavafi's erotic poems and then I fell in love with his historical poems, but there's actually a lot of crossover between them. In other words, there's an eros in the way he approaches history. Um, he makes history personal. Um, so we learn, and we learn about history from the point of view of a voice that's coming to us, whether it's you know a horrible figure like Nero, or you know a. a a salesman you know at when um when um greece falls so um um it's kavafi then inhabiting those different he persons and, yes. within so the poems? he's okay. he's he himself is a translator of history yes um but uh oh, you I, can tell you deeply love him just oh i deeply love him, him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway i'm gonna read uh um two of my favorite of Kavafi's um, erotic poems. Um, one is The Afternoon Sun and the other one is On the Ship. The Afternoon Sun. This room, how well I know it. Now they rent it and the one next door as commercial offices. The whole house became offices for agents and merchants and companies. Ah, this room, how familiar. The couch was near the door, here. In front, a Turkish rug. Near the couch, two yellow vases on a shelf. On the right, no, across from it, was an armoire with a mirror. In the middle, the table where he wrote, and three wicker chairs. Next to the window was the bed where we made love so many times. These sad things must still be somewhere. Next to the window was the bed, the afternoon sun spread across halfway. One afternoon at four o'clock, we separated just for a week. Alas, that week became forever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is um, on the ship. And this is your poem. No, on the this ship, is Kavafi's poem. This is Kavafi's poem on the ship. Okay, on the ship. This small one certainly looks like him, this portrait drawn in pencil. Quickly done on the ship's deck, a magic afternoon, all around us, the Ionian Sea. It looks like him, only I remember him more beautiful. He was sensitive until suffering and this lighted his expression. More beautiful he appears to me now when my soul recalls him out of time. Out of time, all these things are so old, the sketch and the ship and the afternoon. 
Oh, thank you. And then this is a new poem of mine. It's from a manuscript um, called Peak, which is forthcoming with the Sheep Meadow Press. And um, Peak? Peak. Like a mountain peak? Or or like a peak peak inside the box? P-I-Q-U-E. But the pun, the but the pun is is intended. (laughs) The puns are intended. P i q u e, like a mood. Ooh, okay. Um, And uh, it there, it was it was uh, a book written in the wake of um, the breakup of my marriage, which. See, I tremble to say this because I don't want anybody to think that this is the real story. It ain't the real story. So I made up these two personae, the um, crazy ghost and the zombie husband, so that it wouldn't be, you know, Ooh. so that we uh, there could be some sort of distance and I could write whatever crazy stuff I wanted to write. Anyway, but this poem doesn't have uh, either the crazy ghost or the zombie husband in it. It's kind of a... Um, uh, another a poem, a kind of post-marriage uh, sort of a poem about love that um, that is temporary, that where there's there's sort of an idea that um, there's no um, fiction of permanence, and it's influenced. Of course, you'll hear because I stole out of time from Kavafi. And it's also a guzzle. And one reason I'm reading it is because as Americans, and actually the whole world is multicultural, but as Americans, we're particularly um, um, blessed to be an immigrant nation or um, where many cultures are coming together. And so we, it's not assimilation that I want to talk about. It's being able to receive so much. And so this is a guzzle. It's influenced by um, Kavafi. Could, could you explain that um, that that form? Okay. Uh, too? And then, <laughs> if, if you don't mind, and then maybe we'll take a short break and come back and read All right. the poem. Do I have to? Okay. Or a or, guzzle. Okay. It, I, it's very to. difficult. For to, <laughs> I, I can seat, write in poet, it, but there's a refrain. Uh, uh, there's a refrain, and it go- it's twice at the end of the line, and then okay. it's the end of at the end of every um, the second. Uh, there, it's in couplets, and then um, that refrain is in the la- in the second line of each couplet at the end of the line. That's that's what that's enough, Felipe. Okay, that there's like couplets, and that there's refrains right, that people right, can right. listen to. Well, let's um. Let's take a short break so that we can um, be with the poem for as long as it takes. And we'll be right back with The Living Writers Show. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Aliki Barnstone. Um, and now Aliki will read a poem for us. Okay. Guzzle out of time. He sleeps on his belly, his fist under his cheek, a little smile out of time. Despite wrinkles and white hair, I think he looks like a boy out of time. A stuffed dog on the radiator, presses foot to make him sing, singing in the rain. He dances in his red slicker, the umbrella tick-tocking across his torso, out of time. He shifts, wraps his arms around me, and breathes into the back of my body. In the mirror, we're in the posture of making love, only still, at rest, out of the reach of time. The little dog sings a happy refrain, and dead Gene Kelly dances in the rain. The man says, don't imagine a future with me. We kiss out of time. An afternoon of talk, making love, talk, sleep, talk, making love. Perfect. Perfect except listing creates a narrative and an end when we'll be out of time. A car alarm goes off four times in an hour. His mobile rings, rings, rings again. The apartment building door bangs too loud and slams me out of time. I place his palm on my belly, my hand in his, on his. Synchronize your breathing with mine. His worrisome breath, a little catch or click between the in and out of time. We make love again. When we don't face each other, our eyes meet in the mirror. I speak in the present tense, though the mirror and the afternoon are old, out of time. I love his limbs at rest, his chest against my back, his arm below my neck. His big boned wrist and a hand lie on a pillow. One day they'll be dead, out of time. I'm turned toward the mirror in which my face is cut off from my body. I see my bare shoulders and breasts, my hands writing in my book, out of time. The moment I resist coming, not wanting it to end, I let myself go, trusting he'll begin again. Desire implies a future, blank as it is, the next page out of time. Thank you, Aliki. Out of time. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's that is lovely and sad, and, and happy, and happy. There's, you know, there's there's a stuffed dog on the radiator. That was very funny. And Gene Kelly is still singing. Dead Gene Kelly is still dancing singing. in the rain. Dancing in the rain. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't mean to dwell on on what is. Um, Oh, and so, so this is part of the, the, the book that will be coming out in 2008. Peak. Right. Yeah. And so does this also mean that you have your, are you, are you taking like a, a rest? Are you making that space for a little free freedom or are you working on? Am I working on new, something new else? Projects now well, I, I had this very strange experience. I wrote peak in five and a half months. I mean, that's not, that's the initial rating, and uh, you know I'm sure that I'll, it'll be like Blue Earth, where I revise and revise and revise and revise. But um, uh, I'm not a writer who writes um, 
a lot like that. Um, I, I I tend to go through phases and and sometimes you know I've gone for a year without writing a poem and I get very antsy, um, but this was just one of these out of time <laughs> sort of moments <laughs> and I was writing sometimes three poems a day and after I finished to the extent that anything is ever finished I ju- I was just tired of writing I I wanted I, I didn't know what I don't and so I kind of don't know what to do I, I and I and then at the same time I guess this is kind of a uh, you know um, lucky I moved and I couldn't afford to write because if I wrote, then the whole world would fall apart. So I'm kind of casting about, I'm listening to the quiet and I've written a couple of poems. I'm trying to figure out what the next thing is going to be. I don't know yet. I'm giving myself the space to just kind of live a little bit and not make life into art or be, be, yeah, just be. You know, <laughs> I love the casting about though too, because it seems like there's definitely a kinetic um, uh, necessity and strength to you. Because you even talked about like being a, a postal carrier, that would be kinetic, right? right. Be a movement involved right. with that, and sometimes that like that triggers like the that well not to, trigger is such an overused word. Right. I know. <laughs> well, yeah, like, you you kind of move around until um, until something. I mean, I need to move definitely. Moving and, is good, <laughs> and moving in the poems is good too. Like the the the, the pushing forward and the, the yeah, momentum. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so, how did you find? This is going to be completely random. Then going from a, to a new conversation. How did you find Emily Dickinson? What was her? Uh, why was she important to you, Aliki? Well, um, this project it just came out this year, um, July thirty first, two thousand seven. Changing Rapture, Emily Dickinson's poetic development. It is, um, you know, it's a it's a book of scholarship, and um, I I'm planning to maybe write some essays sometime and maybe collect them. I but. I'll never do this again. Oh, okay. <laughs> Pronouncement. Well, it's probably it's the, the the since I said that I'll I'll have to go back on my word. But was this in service to like the PhD at Berkeley? Yeah, was, it was okay. it was my dissertation years and years and years ago, revised many times over. But um, when I was um, when when I was a teenager, um, I uh, I discovered the word feminism. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. That's what I am. <laughs> I'm a feminist, um, which I know is now kind of a bad word. But um, at, in the 70s, it wasn't a bad word. Well, if liberal is a bad word. Yeah, right? liberal so, is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, being a peacenik is bad, too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, so I... Uh, and then I read... Um, and I always loved Emily Dickinson, but I read um, Adrian Rich's um, essay, Vesuvius at Home, and then I read The Mad Woman in the Attic, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar's groundbreaking book, and I thought, well, this is what I want to do. I want to write feminist criticism, and I was really devoted to Dickinson, and so I just kind of, years and years ago when I was... Um, um, you know, in my first year, I got my master's from Brown, and um, this was in the early 80s, and I just sort of decided I was going to write about Emily Dick. I was going to get a PhD. I didn't, 
I never got a degree in creative writing. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher. I had a few wonderful teachers at Brown. Um, Robert Scholes, who's a, who's a theoretician, and, um, and Barton St. Armand, who's a Dickinson scholar. And I took a wonderful course with him, and he encouraged me. Um, I wrote an essay, and he thought it was amazingly good, which I was stunned by because I couldn't believe that Barton St. Armand would think anything I would write would be good. And he told, he said, try to publish it. And I did. And I, then when I, when I was accepted, I, I was, I was, I thought, oh, this is impossible. They or must new, have... new possibilities opening up. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, he thought it was impossible. Uh, yeah. There but was it was, but, and so, um, but Dickinson, uh, uh, she's so difficult. And at the same time, um, you can't be an American poet and not know Dickinson. What? Why is she difficult to you, Aliki? Like, or or to, or, or to all of us? What? How would you say? Well, I think her her compression and and um, is is difficult. I but you know when I'm teaching Dickinson, which is very difficult for me, I always start with the poems I think are immediate because the other part of Dickinson is, despite the fact that she goes really deep. And and says a lot with few words. Um, uh, she there are poems like a bird came down the walk, which is you know a beautiful poem that children can appreciate because I've read it to children and they love it. Um, and then at the end, something very weird happens. Something that might you know you can analyze being transcendental and there you know, um, is that there's a, a moment of difficulty, but. Um, uh, and then there's poem like Wild Nights, um, which is another poem that's immediate. And so I think start with the immediate, the the poems that are that that hit you instantly, because she's the one who said, um, "When I feel as though the top of my head is coming off, I know that is a poem." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's a great way to put it. That is that's it. <laughs> yeah, but um. Dickinson for me uh, is a lot like Cavafy um, in that I read Dickinson and I had her inside me. And so um, although um, writing a book of criticism is a is quite an undertaking, it's especially so for someone yeah, for somebody like me, it was easy to be devoted enough to, to do it, to keep at it with her. And um, I would say though, for me, Whitman as is as much inside me as Dickinson, um, but uh, she's a good master. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, um, I also we're because we're coming to the end of our time, Aliki, mm -hmm. which is so is surprising to me. But um, I wanted to ask you, and this is from left field as well, but maybe okay. some feminism. Um, well. D when you were 12 and Anne Sexton uh, wrote the foreword to your first book of poems, yeah. did you meet Anne Sexton? No, did I you? never met her. Oh. And then when I, I went to Brown and um, it was 1974 and I thought, well, now I'm, you know, I don't live in the Midwest anymore. I live on the East Coast and I'm an hour train ride away from where Anne Sexton lives. So I'll meet her one day. And I opened up the New York Times and she had committed suicide. In the end, I'm glad I didn't meet her. Why? You know, um, because when I was 
I didn't know very much about her, I, but I read a lot of her work, and um, I wouldn't want to wouldn't have wanted to have the sorrow of having someone who was kind of like um, you know a guardian angel commit suicide. I mean, there are already two suicides in my family. I, you know, I wouldn't have needed more. Right. I right. mean, I know that sounds kind of no, no. ridiculous, but no, it doesn't at all. It doesn't, and it's it's something about keeping the work. Um, as itself, as, yeah, as, a, as itself. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. that makes perfect and sense. And her, her, well, I mean, I could talk about this because it's such a long time ago. But um, the the preface that she wrote to my book is so generous and positive and optimistic. And so I get to have that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that was true. Yeah. And, and that true was true. Well. Yeah. It continues to be that way. So, I, you know, in the end, I'm glad I didn't meet her. I'm glad that I get to have Anne Sexton as a figure, not as somebody that I could say, oh, well, she was this way and that way. And, you know, I'm just, yeah. She's she's a generous yeah. Anne Sexton. For you. And, you know, it, I'm so glad that I did get to meet you. <laughs> thank you for being on the Living Th Writers Show. And thank you for having me. We'll come back anytime. I will. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for listening, Anne Arbor, and for those streaming in, in Seattle, Chicago, England. Thanks so much to our Rita, um, our, our lovely um, engineer for today. And thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Aliki. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Till, till next time. <laughs> Sports Report. Puts it around the boards. Hensick is there. Puts it out in front. Shot at that by Turnbull. He scores. Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead. It's now three to one. Eight seconds left to go. He will dump it into neutral ice. Five seconds left to go. Hensick gets the puck. Sends it all the way in over the goal. And time is going to expire. The Wolverines won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yosai Arena. Hi everyone and welcome to the Daily Sports Sport Wednesday's edition this week, November 7th. Uh, Rushi Vias here alongside Amy Amanovich, Sheila Daniels, and Tony Bolton and Mrs. Bolton tonight. So uh, this is going to be a good show for sure. Uh, first of all, let's start off with some Michigan news. I believe Sheila's got that for us. She? All right, we are going to talk about some field hockey, first of all, because I think we should 
give a little shout out to this sport. Um, U of M has been chosen to serve as one of four first and second round sites for the 2007 NCAA Division I Field Hockey Championships. Games will be at Phyllis Oker Field and